If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Susan, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 202 of Classic Conversations. And don't blink, because this one's a classic one, but it's going to go by in a flash. Flash, see what I did there? My guest today is John Wesley Shipp. That's right, the OG Barry Allen from The Flash from the 90s, now flashing it up on the CW the flash you loved him in dawson's creek two-time daytime emmy award winner john wesley ship is coming up in just a few seconds nay ninja in a flash but first i hope you all celebrated episode 200 with me and comedy icon dave thomas of sctv fame that was amazing episode 198 with rose abdu amazing so much amazingness let's add to the amazingness right now shall we yes we shall i'm excited to share my conversation with John Wesley Ship with you. Enjoy. All right, my next guest you've loved in the flash, Dawson's Creek, NYPD Blue, as the world turns, Santa Barbara, and a million other places. Welcome to the show, John Wesley Ship. Hey, what's up? Hey, how are you? I am good. I am good. So nice to see you. So... <laughs> Thanks. Good to be here. I wanted to kick off my question. I was trying to think, what's the first thing I should ask? The first thing I was wondering about is if you get PTSD every time you hear the song Drift Away. Oh, you mean the song I was singing when I was during my fatal accident? Yes. Uh, you know, people <laughs> people have so many opinions about that. I actually, they told they gave me a choice of two songs. They said it could be Fire and Rain or it could be drift away. And, and the whole setup, you know, people had a lot of various reactions about it, including the writers. One of the writers said he thought it was a terrible way to get rid of character, but I actually appreciated it. You know, it was time for the kids to go to school. They were leaving the creek. And uh, they said, you know, if Dawson and I had been fighting about what he should do about his future, then I have to go get milk because he drank all the baby's milk. And so I go and it ends up that I have this conversation with the guy at the convenience store, who of course is a family friend because it's a very small town and we work everything out. And so Mitch, after two episodes uh, or of uh, conflict, has resolved everything in his mind. And he's in a really great mood, sort of a very Zen moment, you know, you know what I mean? Sort of everything's cool. He's singing along to the radio. He's eating an ice cream cone and bam. So I actually, the last two episodes that I did on Dawson's Creek were two of my favorite in that they made me feel like the previous four years had been about something, that it impacted the characters' lives so dramatically that it was like, oh, Mitch really did uh, have an impact, really did make a difference. And it served the show because by fifth season, they didn't have any story. And so they knew that I didn't want to stay. And as the kids went to college, be relegated to basically a background player, stand holding the baby and wave at college right. day, you know, yeah. parents day at college. And this gave me really, really respectful send off some really good stuff to play. So no, I have no PTSD about that, about that at all. In fact, I get emotional watching it and I think, oh, Mitch, oh God, they really did love Mitch. Oh yeah. I just meant it in a joking way. It, 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 like you're somewhere and it comes on and you're like, oh, <laughs> just because it, yeah. it's tied to that scene. It was, uh, yeah, I could have asked the same thing about eating a big uh, vanilla ice cream. Well, you know, people at conventions, they bring me, I have an ice cream cone pin. I should have, I should have worn it some fan brought me an ice cream cone pin. They'll bring me drawings of ice cream cones at conventions. And, and I'll go, oh, that's dark. It's funny. But that's, you know, everybody gets a big kick out of uh, riffing on that. Also, because John 
me, my nemesis is ice cream. It was something of a set joke. I mean, if there was ever any ice cream on craft service, it said, John, there's ice cream. So the fact that I would meet my demise eating ice cream was uh, appropriate on, on a number of levels. We've all done what you did in that scene. You drop something, you think you can lean over while you're driving. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. I, was, I was watching that. I was like, oh, I've done that. Not with ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, like, we all think, you know, we have our fries and we have our this. And it's amazing how many nothing at all serious, but how many accidents happen because you're eating while you're driving, because invariably you'll drop a French fry or something. And yeah, it is perilous to you know, pull over, finish your ice cream cone, and then proceed. Well, at the end, you look up. That's the boom, end of the episode. The way they did it was so shocking that there was only one conclusion really to draw, and that it was confirmed the following week in the episode in which I appear basically a la six feet under as a ghost, you know, as a memory, uh, tying up all of my relationships with the kids, with my wife, with my son, which was a very meaningful episode for me too, because it gave me a real full circle moment. And that very last moment of that episode, the long goodbye, where I'm with the camera and I just, for some reason, I stopped. And I look and I'm going this way as the camera is swirling that way. And you're seeing the creek and you're seeing how much Mitch loves his life. And then it goes all the way 360. And then I go into the house, the camera zooms up to the sky. I just thought, rarely has a character been given a more respectful and affectionate send-off. It really felt like a confirmation that it was it was the right thing to do. It was an important character, and, it, and then the death actually catapulted everything that kind of came after it and dealing with it. That's right. You, just you know, it. they shut, they were shooting fifth season. They let all the adults' contracts expire because the kids were going to college, and instead of 19 or 21 episodes out of the adults, they only wanted six. I didn't really want to hang around to do six episodes. You know, It had been such a positive experience up to that point. So I went back to LA without closing my contract. They started shooting the first episode of Fifth Seeds, and I figured you know, I was done. I was fine. And then I got a call from Paul Stupin, executive producer, saying that if I come to L.A., will you have coffee with me? And then I said, sure, absolutely. And then he said, the studio has shut us down because we don't have any story. What I'm out here to ask you is if we give you the money you're asking and we promise you two really good scripts, will you come back and kill the character? Of course, you know, at first it was like, <gasps> you know, but they were as good as their word. They gave me a beautiful send off and I don't regret a minute of it. Well, it's good that they gave you that, that courtesy. Yeah. You didn't see that kind of stuff on 90210, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it also worked for them because suddenly they had story. It was Dawson's fault, quote unquote, that I had to go out for milk. So he's the reason I was on the road because he drank all the baby's milk. He goes into therapy. Gail suddenly is a widow. I had relationships with all of the kids. In a way, Pacey's surrogate father. I mean, it was a it reverberated not only throughout Cape Side, but throughout the nobody saw it coming. Nobody. And it gave them story, as you yourself said, it sort of was a motivating event for everything then that came after. So everybody won. So as wonderful and beloved as you were on Dawson's Creek, I read you weren't in the actual pilot or the no. pilot presentation, or right? No, I was off in Moab, Utah, filming The Lost Treasure of Dos Santos with uh, David Carradine, Lee Majors, Kathy Lee Crosby, and Michelle Green. That was a very interesting five weeks in Moab, you know, with our one-stop light and in our little hotel all there together doing this movie, which I don't think anyone will ever see. I think maybe you should hear one. And so then, then they decided to go in a different direction after the pilot presentation. And so they sent it to me to, to look at, and I knew that it would immediately that it was something unique, that there had not been a show written for young people like this before, where they were having all of these complex, conflicting emotions and had a vocabulary to express these emotions. In other words, Kevin Williamson was writing up to a young audience instead of down to a young audience. You know, and I thought, well, this certainly looks, it sounds different. The creek, the water is a character 
in the show. And I thought, yeah, everybody had the sense at the beginning it was unique. And so I went in and I read and I auditioned and uh, I was shooting Soldier of Fortune and Brad Johnson had broken my nose. We had this like six minute knife fight and he threw the punch the opposite way. And, and, I, and I went right into it and flattened my nose. So I had, I look like Rocky Graziano going in to meet <laughs> with the network people. But we made a joke about that and uh, everyone relaxed. And, and then I was on a plane like three days later and I reshot the scenes from the first episode. They were already shooting the second episode. And then I picked up with the second episode and then was there for left. What was it? The fourth, fifth, fourth episode of the fifth season, I think, was when I left. All right. So I want to talk Flash. We'll talk Flash. But before Flash, let's talk before Flash. So. You are a two-time Daytime Emmy Award winner, back-to-back. And the interesting thing about that is back-to-back on two different soaps. I wanted to ask you if there's any soap operas you want to be on, because it seems like you've been on every single one. I'm not a complete aficionado, but it's been on so many. (laughs) I've been on every one that's no longer on the air. I don't take personal responsibility for that, but <laughs> but it so happens. It's been interesting because after the contract part, I was on Guiding Light for four years playing a really good guy. And since then, I've been able to come back and do three or four month gigs, which means, and I've gotten to play a bad guy, a brilliant, a sadistic, a woman abusing lawyer on all my children, another woman abuser on uh, Santa Barbara. I started off as a really good guy opposite Julianne Moore on As the World Turns. And then I went all the way out to Stark Raving Mad and was killed. I was stabbed in the back during a rape attempt, you know. So I got to play everything that I had been playing, and then all the way out to crazy. And I got to break tight really early in my career. You know, that was the good thing about that. And I did a limited run on in 2010 as the abusive father, uh, Ford father, Eddie Ford. So yeah, I've been able to jump back and forth between really good dads, really bad dad. I've played the worst dad ever on Teen Wolf in like, uh, whatever that was, uh, 2011, 2005, uh, 2012. And the reviews said, fans of Dawson's Creek and The Flash, get ready. This character leaves no room but for you to hate him. And it was psycho dad, truly was. Daniel Sharman played my son, and I was uh, Mr. Leahy. And uh, that was very dark. But it has allowed me to play a drug-addicted cop on NYPD Blue. I say my career has been comprised of superheroes and psychopaths. And so it's kept it interesting. Well, they are two two sides of the same coin, right? So <laughs> It's kind of, yeah. One gets dangerously close to the other, right? Sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick break. I do want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my stupendous conversation with John Wesley Shipp. And we're back. So do you love the fact, I imagine you do, that when people show up to a John Wesley Ship role, when they show up to a John Wesley Ship role, they don't know what they're going to get, right? And I mean that in a good way, yeah. meaning like, Yes, yes, yes. And that happened. And I have to thank the late Douglas Marland, multiple Emmy Award winning, one of the last of the great daytime head writers. Soap operas used to be ruled by a head writer figure, you know, it's like, or, or, or an executive producer, Gloria Monti on General Hospital. Doug Marland was one of these very powerful, uh, multiple award winning writers who wrote my role on Guiding Light created Kelly Nelson and then knew there was more to me as an actor and wrote the part of Douglas Cummings on, uh, as I said, I got to, well, it was interesting. My dressing roommate on Guiding Light was Kevin Bacon. Then my 10-month part on As the World Turns, my leading lady was Julianne Moore. My competition was uh, Stephen Weber. The great Julia Pagano was my confident, uh, close friend. And of course, there was uh, Catherine Hayes, who uh, recently this year passed away. I mean, all these wonderful, wonderful actors that I got play, really terrific writing. And in the early 80s, it was the youth explosion on daytime. Well, I mean, in those days, we were getting 22 million viewers a week. 
we were getting primetime numbers. Of course, there were five channels. Right. So we kind of had a cast. Same thing with the original Flash. I was surprised to go back and learn. I had forgotten that our premiere of Flash 1990 premiered in front of an audience of 22.5 million people. And that's in spite of being in CBS's toughest time slot, opposite Cosby and The Simpsons at their peak. So it was it was different in those days. You had to carry 25 a million, 25 million, 30 million viewers in order to stay on the air. Now with 300 channels, you know, with all, you know, you can have, you can keep a show on the air and you can have a hit with six or 7 million viewers because now there are 300 channels, you know, they're happy to get between three and 6 million. I imagine there's also a longer tail because now if you're on Netflix, if you don't watch it the first week or like, you know, like any of the Game of Thrones as they're happening, it's there. So you can still, back then, Flash 90, unless I, you know, remembered to set up my VCR, <laughs> right? Well, that wasn't, that wasn't a guarantee either because they switched us to 8.30 to 9.30 and then they switched our night and then we were preempted for the World Series and then we were preempted for the first Gulf War and then Daddy Bush threw up on the Prime Minister of Japan and of course we had to cut away and see that and fans couldn't find the show. If there had been DVRs in 1990-91, I think I'm pretty sure it would have gone another season and we'd all be dead. Because getting an hour of superhero television in 1990-91 was a different animal. And trying to do it seriously, for real, with, at that time, state-of-the-art special effects, lots of live-action practical effects. We were blowing stuff up all over Los Angeles all night long, every night long, every night for nine months. As Danny Bilson has said, if we wanted to blow up a semi of cars and shoot flames 35 feet in the air, we had to really do it. If I was going to do an eating scene that would go by like that, I'd have to eat and eat and eat and eat. There'd be a bucket beside me. Or if I was going to run, either me or Dane Farwell, my wonderful stuntman, we'd have to run and run and run. They'd undercrank camera, they'd speed it up. And what would take you maybe seven to 12 minutes to film would go by in 20 seconds, if that much, you know. So it was a different animal trying to get superhero TV in 1990. Before I was introduced to Flash 1990, in 1990, <laughs> I love how now with the CW, everything's like Batman 89, Superman 78. They all, they all. Right, right, right. We all have our numbers attached to us. So I was obsessed with Batman 89, Michael Keaton, Batman, Tim Burton, that whole evolution of the superhero and the way uh, Tim Burton told that story and how it diverged so greatly from the Adam West, Burt Ward, you know, shtick that they did with the original Batman. I loved it. I remember, I mean, I've in, like embedded in my brain you in that Flash 90 costume when they were introducing it because Flash 90 was in that vein, right? It was it was a full extension of that type of st superhero storytelling and i yeah. was in it for a hundred percent i loved it loved 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 it yeah tim burton's batman and danny bilson and paul DeMeo's flash were both in development at warner brothers right around the same time around uh, a new idea of how to present these stories for a more mainstream audience that they would not be spoofed in fact i was very hesitant to even audition for it when I heard they were going to be doing, they wanted me to audition for a superhero because I was used to seeing the joke, you know, the characters not taken seriously. And that's not really, I had been on Broadway. Like you said, I had my two, I had been a question on Jeopardy, you know, who's the only actor to win two consecutive Emmys from two different daytime shows. And I had just done Neverending Story 2, which we shot in Germany and Vancouver. And I wasn't at all sure I wanted to go to superhero television. I want to run around in a pair of red tights and go swoosh, bang, pow. You know, even though as a kid, I loved that. But they assured me that's not what this was going to be. It was going to be the most expensive show Warner Brothers had ever done around a darker uh, way of telling these stories, taking these characters seriously, having a family dynamic that fed into why he initially did not want to use his powers until his brother was killed. You know, that there was an emotional underpinning to all the fun stuff that happened on screen. And all the fun stuff that happened on screen really was somebody else's job. My job was to ground it 
in a character, hopefully, you know, while there was humor, it was mostly based in character and situation. It wasn't sit on a whoopee cushion, slip on a banana peel humor. You know what I mean? Right. And my job was to play this guy as honestly as possible to provide an emotional underpinning for for this action adventure show with uh, superhero powers. It was an experiment at that time, which certainly now has paid off. You know, I mean, we were coming, Tim Burton's Batman, which was the year before, released the year before, and us, we started shooting in the spring of 1990. We did not know, it was not a given, you know, how it would be received. Now, 24 years later, the new shows come, the audience is there, San Diego Comic-Con is a huge event, over 100,000 people take over the town, the audience is ready for it. But in 1990, it was like, it was a new animal. And looking back, I'm very proud to have been at the cutting edge of a new way of telling these stories for the screen. Right. The problem with superheroes back then where you and Batman 89 and Flash 90 stood apart, is there were so many bad ones. There was so many people that just didn't get it right, you know, either before or after, especially once it got really big and then they kept doing it. Now they've got all the tech where they can, and the, and the story writers and people take it much more seriously now across Marvel and DC. But I mean, there was periods of time where there was just so much garbage. So you really, you stopped even taking a chance on it. Yeah. And but the Flash 90, like you said, was just stellar in terms of how it approached everything. And and again, any fan of Batman 89 that, you know, could have only helped, right? To just say, oh, this is oh, yeah. this is the direction. This is where superheroes are going. And it was it was wonderful. Thanks. Talk to me about working with Mark Hamill. That must have been fun. Mark is I'm so fortunate to have crossed paths with Mark, you know, at that point in my career, also with my own self-consciousness, being in a superhero suit, you know, should I have dialogue? And I didn't want to be a mascot. How do I be taken seriously? How do I, you know, and uh, I felt in those early scenes that I shot, I'm really stiff in the suit. And in the first Trickster episode, here comes Mark, balls to the wall, 100% committed to all of the madness and eccentricity of this character and not shrinking from it at all, playing it wide open 100%, which uh, I was able then to relax a little bit and get over myself. And certainly by the trial of the trickster at the very end, when he's mind controlling me and I have trickster boots in the flash suit and I'm knocking over parking meters and I'm his sidekick and we're catching bullets and throwing him back at the police, which we would never be allowed to do today. Among other things, our version at times got dark, I would say. And, but, you know, uh, allowed me to relax a little bit and have a good time because, you know, if Mark Hamill wasn't going to come in and be self-conscious about it, then I needed to get over my bad self and commit a hundred percent. I had no problem committing to Barry Allen because Paul DeMeo and Danny Bilson's script was so rich. I was so clear. I remember April Webster, the casting director, when I was hesitant, she said, just read the script. And when I read about this family where with this unblessed son who worked in a crime lab when the dad respected the older brother because real cops worked the streets. And he kind of dismissed Barry. Barry was uh, the guy that went to the crime lab so mom wouldn't be afraid that all of her men might not come home that night. You know what I mean? Right. And he was fine with it. He was fine with it. And then uh, all the different things that happen and getting used to the powers, not wanting them at the beginning. Wonderful Tim Thomerson, that relationship with the brother. There were a lot of emotional levels for me to dig into. And that's what saved me, particularly at the beginning, because it was, although there was humor, it was a character that I could honestly uh, insert myself into that frame of mind. What would happen to an ordinary guy if you suddenly get extraordinary abilities, particularly abilities that would make your your dad so proud, your dad who has discounted you, if you could tell him, but you can't. I mean, all these things, what kind of effect would it have on a CSI? And we were CSI before CSI was cool. If suddenly, would there be a temptation to push it 
to go too far? Uh, would he be afraid that it would burn? He'd burn himself out. Those were all things that interested me on a psychological level and kept me engaged in a genre that I otherwise would not have found interesting to play. But see, comic book fans already knew that. Comic book fans, the guys who were made fun of. I don't know uh, them. <laughs> back before, they knew that these stories had resonance. Nobody else knew. Well, they know now, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Comics have taken over the industry. You know, you can't turn on television without supernatural powers uh, appearing at some point or another in an episode. The meek shall inherit the earth. Here we go. Now, yes, right, baby. <laughs> That's right. I tell my audiences, aren't you proud of yourselves? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that's why everyone has such great memories of the show. It was well-written. It was for the time in 1990. Amazing. Just like the Hulk was amazing for its time. You know, even if you watch him, you know, transform into the Hulk now, you have to think, all right, this was back then. This is really good for then. And at the time, great. But Flash 90, awesome. It just, and it was critically acclaimed at the time too. I mean, you didn't, it wasn't like oh years later. Oh my God. No, we, uh, the fact that's one thing that was just picked up in the, in the genre press, because I had, I had put a link to someone had said that on 32 years ago today, such and such an episode aired. And I went back and got the Washington Post, the Kansas City Star, the Louisville Courier Journal, the New York Times, that, and the reviews were over the moon. And, you know, my, my comment was, you know, my parting gift to Grant Gustin will be 25 years from now when he wants to sort of remember the effect that his show had. Don't read the reviews 25 years from now. Go back and read the reviews that were written at, at the time, which in 1990, we're talking about eye-popping effects. 10 on the Zowie Wowie scale, I think yeah, that was the Washington Post. State-of-the-art effects for the time. Sometimes I will read a review written by someone that seems like I'm like, you weren't even alive when this was on, <laughs> you know, and they'll say something about, they'll make some comment that gives them away. And I'll say, you have no idea the context that the show came into. You're judging a 1990-91 show in 2022, and you don't understand the historical context. We did a 25th anniversary at a theater in Los Angeles with Mark Hamill and the uh, production team, the special effects team from the new show, from the old show. And they, we had a Q&A after, and they were, special effects teams were saying that we pioneered certain effects that they then took to the next level on the CW. Right. You pretended to run super fast so that they could run <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was amazing. I have to say it was amazing. David Nutter, Emmy Award winning director for Game of Thrones and others, he directed our pilot, CW pilot. After I shot that first prison scene, he called everybody around, the crew and everybody. And he said, I just want to say that none of us would be here today if this man hadn't proven 24 years ago that this kind of show could be done and could be taken seriously on television. Of course, I that made me very emotional, and I quickly excused myself. I did a, I did a flash, I flashed right out. Oh, thank you, thank you, boom! You know, because it was very moving for me to hear that. No, it is, it is. I mean, it's it's amazing how respectful of the new CW Flash is of where it came from. Sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick break. John Wesley Shipp needed a, a second to compose himself. I told him not to go get an ice cream. I kid. All right, and we're back. Well, I didn't realize that our executive producers, Andrew Kreisberg, uh, Greg Berlanti, who is one of my head writers on Dawson's Creek, I never knew Flash was his favorite character the whole time I worked with him on Dawson's Creek. I mean, never said anything about that. Jeff Johns and David Nutter, you know, David and I, we were getting ready to film very raw scene where Barry's being taken away. The mother has just been killed. Police are taking me away. They think I've killed the mother. And, you know, and right before we go to them dragging me out of the house, he comes up to me, he says, you were my hero growing up. Okay, five, four, go, action. And I'm like, uh, 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 uh. Now, I think he's a very smart director. And that's exactly where Henry should have been, thrown off. And so he totally got me into the emotional place that I needed to be for that arrest scene. But it was an off-right. I, I am incredibly moved by kindness. Yesterday at the gym in New York City, this young man came up 
and said, of all the flashes, you're my favorite flash. And my girlfriend has your flashes t-shirt. And we just think that, you know, and I'm there thinking after he left, he said, I don't want to bother you. He says, you're not bothering me. Whenever I have those interactions, I think how incredibly kind it is. He didn't have to take the time out of his workout and the risk to come over and tell me that. And, and you know, people always apologize. They think, well, I don't want to bother you. But for me, that's an act of great kindness and appreciation for someone to take time out of their lives. If it's a couple minutes, our lives are made up of minutes to come over and express appreciation for a piece of work that I've done. Of course, I'm grateful to receive that, you know, in the spirit in which it's presented. It's great to hear, and especially when, you know, to just to hear nuggets of how you changed, you know, or impacted somebody's life. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Those are the type of yeah. messages we need to share for people who were superheroes or not. Just if someone, it's always good. Or to, not a yeah. teacher. Uh, that's what I say also in my Q&As. Uh, I'm getting ready to go back to Ecuador. You know, I mean, my God, last time I was in Ecuador, it was like, 50, 60,000 people. It was over the top. In, in uh, Lima, Peru, it was 100,000 people. And it was, I had a security detail of, I mean, it was like the enthusiasm and, and worldwide London, Paris, uh, Dublin, uh, wherever I go to appear, the impact of these shows. And I always tried to make the point two points. One, don't let superhero entertainment become a trap. There is a trap in superhero entertainment, if we develop a psychology, like in the old Greek theater, the deus ex machina, it's going to be okay because something outside of us is going to come down and save us. Some superhuman element, whether we call it God, whether we call it Superman, whether we call you know, the, the God in the machine, as they called, you know, in the old Greek drama, is going to come and save us. And I say, number one, you have to find out what the heroic elements are in your life. Because you have to be the superhero of your world. And then I also say, everybody, all of us, these are stories. And I think that's why they relate. Each of us has, I call it a vein of gold, a thing that we do specifically well. Sometimes we don't even know what that is, but usually we do, really, if we're quiet with it. And how do you deal in your world with what you know to be your gift? You get to watch these stories on screen. And Barry's a wonderful example of that because he's just a regular guy. He's not a vigilante. You know, he's not Hugh Hollywood hero. He's a regular guy with an extraordinary gift. And how does he deal with that and come to terms with it and not let it run away with him metaphorically and literally on a daily basis? It's so much deeper than what people, you know, people give credit for. It's like, it's such a, a nuanced way of telling stories. It's so wonderful. That's why it draws in. Is it like heartbreaking? Like, like they're ending the Arrowverse and they're bringing down, you know, this is the final seasons, you know, nine is the final season. It's like, no, you know what? I got so close to Grant that for coming in and playing his father in those beautifully written scenes. And each scene was as beautiful or more and textured and layered than the one before. We developed as actors, as human beings, as characters, such a close relationship. And I don't know how the man has lasted into season nine. And so I'm not sorry that I know that, that he's ready to move on. And he has given it his all. And it's, it's time. Nine seasons is a lot to do anything. I mean, I think most people, you know, you put in, you always hear people, actors saying, you know, it was time, we did everything we could. You know, it's like, at some point you have yeah, to do something And then, then when you add special effects, then when you add that you're working in a suit, a superhero suit, and you add, layer everything on top of that, and you're the flash in the flash. It's just, it's been a truly heroic effort on his part that he's kept up his energy, his enthusiasm, his commitment to the role and the project character. I've just had a blast working with him. And I'll be interested to see how they how they close out this ninth season. You brought back Flash 90. You've been also Jay Garrick, Earth 2 Flash. Do you love that costume? <laughs> Such a cool classic Compared costume. Compared to the original one? Absolutely. Oh my God. You know, I can just take that helmet off as I always do. I walk in, hi, uh, helmet, helmet. It goes under the arm. Also, it's an outer leather shell and an Under Armour suit so they can wash the undersuit. That was the problem with the first suit. They couldn't clean them. $100,000 to build four suits in 1990. That's like 
$380,000 today, you know, to construct four flash suits, two for the stuntman and two for me. And they had all kinds of problems. I was sweating through them. They were crumbling from the maintenance from like third episode onward. And uh, they're thankfully there. They would just hang it in my trailer and spray it with Lysol. Then when I put it on at five in the morning, it'd still be wet, sticky. And, you know, I mean, thank God there have been improvements in a quarter of a century. So did no one want to hang out with you at the end? Hey, John. Yeah, we're going to call it a day, John. It's like, yeah, <laughs> cut. Okay, you go back to your trailer. <laughs> <laughs> we're good. What you guys Yeah, we're good. We're good. We're good. We'll see you later. We'll see do you, you want later. another one? Can I do another one? No, no, no. We got it. We got it. We got it. It's good. Oh, man. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I, um, I was, I Googled something. I was like other superheroes, other actors that returned to their roles years later, but you got everyone beat. It seemed like Michael Keaton maybe was going to start to become on your heels. And then all that kind of went, went to, you know, the wayside. The crisis on infinite earth was an amazing kind of show and connection. Actually, uh, Evan Miller was in that one too. There was a lot of flashes in crisis, you know? but, uh, that is like what I would, this article I found is that superhero or actors are turned to superhero roles. Most of them were from the crisis <laughs> from like Burt Ward doing Robin again, Patrick Stewart, professor X, but I didn't really count that one. Cause I feel like he never really stopped playing that role. And then, uh, you know, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire re-examined, but I think you've kind of set the bar for coming back. Like I said, Keaton was trying to, but Batgirl got canceled, and then who knows what's happening with that Flash movie now. And When I stop it, I think I've played, what is it, five characters across four different shows. I was Barry, I was Professor Zoom on Batman the Brave and the Bold. Then I came back 24 years later as Henry Allen, and then 28 years later, I was Jay Garrick, and then 29 years later, I came back as Flash 90. If you count that as this. And then I took Jay Garrick to Stargirl. So that's CBS, Warner Brothers, Flash, Batman, the Brave of the Bold, CW Flash, CW Stargirl. So it's been five characters over 30 years across four different shows in the same franchise. It's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> it's nothing I ever expected. That's incredible. I mean, can you think of anyone who's even come close to something like that? I Well, they tell me no. It's been pointed out to me because I didn't think anything of it. It's just another part I would want to play. But someone said, stop and think about, I mean, this is something for you to notice. You know, it's like you're unique in this genre. The length of time, the scope, the single franchise. I've been myself, my own worth enemy, my father, my mentor, and then a new version of myself. It's on four different shows. So that's bizarre, but I'm grateful. So <laughs> and this is while doing Broadway. I've been Broadway twice. I, of course, did Dawson's Creek. I drug addicted cop. I'm a psycho father on Team Wolf, you know, The Closer, CSI New York, you know, all these other things and regional theater. But the thread that keeps coming back is the Flash franchise in always very surprising ways. It's it's amazing. Oh, I find so I always try and dig and try and find all right some random thing that I Okay. <laughs> let's just say I have no idea if this is true or not, but let's let's just run let's go with it for a second. So all right, this relates to Flash ninety, Daredevil. Rex Smith was Daredevil in Trial of the Incredible Hulk, right? So they brought back the Return of the Incredible Hulk with Eric Kramer as Thor, and then they did the tri uh, the sequel, and Eric Smith was the first Daredevil. And the idea of both of those was to try and spin off a Thor show and then a Daredevil. Thor, I think, hit a writer's a writer strike. And then the uh, Daredevil one, this is where you come in, is he says, I hear from my agent, CBS bought out my contract because they're coming out with this show called The Flash and they don't want the competition. <laughs> So NBC sold his contract so they could bury that so that The Flash would be the only superhero show on it. And then Rex Smith went back to As the World Turns, his uh, soap opera career. So. Oh, my goodness. Really? I had no idea. I, I didn't no either. It was, just, it was just such a it was so random. I just <laughs> I don't even know how I found it. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, you, you go down these Google rabbit holes. You can just find stuff. It was just. And I came off of As the World Turns to go to The Flash. So. Oh, there you go. So funny. Uh, 
I know back then you would you'd always joked it was good news, bad news that the Flash 90 got canceled. Like you said, I gave so many examples how hard it was. The universe wanted it's just you. the number of hours. I mean, you know, we'd be shooting all night long till dawn by Wednesday. And, you know, we'd be tenting in the back lot at Warner Brothers in L.A. And the studio executives would be coming to work as we were going home. And our guest stars by about the third day of the episode would be you do this every week. And I remember the topper was we actually woke up a director in his hotel and brought him to the back lot at Warner Brothers to start shooting an episode at 3 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And he was like, are you insane? It's like, we have to utilize every single hour that we have because it was like a runaway train. It took us nine days, two units running simultaneously to get our one hour show back then. Wow. I believe on the new show, we did enter flash time in seven days of principal photography. Now, post-production, CGI, all that stuff is much longer. They have so much more capability. But the number, I was there 55 to 80 hours a week. We had transportation people putting in 24, 25 hour days. You know, it was insane. So, and it was that way from the third week in August through the second week in May with four days off for Christmas. And that was it. I would be under the shower at six and I wouldn't know if it was a.m. or p.m. One more. It was that we had worked till like 10 in the morning. So our call was like three in the afternoon. And I, and I got my car and I drove to Warner Brothers and all the trailers were gone. And I was like, there's my parking spot. There's no trip. My trailer isn't there. Where is everybody? I'm like, oh my God, did we get canceled? Nobody told me what happened. So I called Danny and Danny's like, John, we're on location today. And I went, oh, thanks. <laughs> I, thought, I thought they pulled the plug. And that's when they began to work. They began to worry a little bit about, about my sleep deprivation and the heat and you know, the stress of, of that whole experience. Thank God I was 30 years younger then, or I never would have been able to do it. I gotta say, you look practically the same. You wouldn't even know. You've aged well. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, uh, you should write a book and make a video on that. I did have one other question, I uh, non-Flash related. So I know yeah. uh, Guiding Light was one of your was your big breakout in the early, early 80s. But during that time, you made a visit to Fantasy Island. Yes, I did. And it's actually on, somebody surprised me because I knew what they call the OG Flash is on Hulu. They brightened up the transfers. They look fantastic and they're all running for free, streaming for free on Hulu. But somebody sent me the Fantasy Island episode that I did with Susan Lucci. And I, that must have been 1982. Susan yeah, swears because I saw her when I went on in 1992. I was doing Dancing at Lunasa. Uh, the Irish play, the Tony Award winning Irish play by Brian Friel at what was then the Plymouth Theater. It's now been renamed the Schoenfeld Theater on Broadway. And they asked me to come in and do four months on All My Children, this crazy psychotic character. And I hadn't seen Susan in 10 years. Well, no, no, I probably had seen her at award shows or passing, but she swears that I went up that when I met her on the set of Fantasy Island, I went, oh my God, you're so tiny. And I picked her up by the elbows and started doing shoulder <laughs> presses with her. <laughs> I said, Susan, I do not remember that. But she was, she swore to the executive producer. She said, that's my first memory of John Wesley Shipp. <laughs> That's really funny. I saw, I looked and I think Anson Williams and David Cassidy were on that episode. I don't know if they were in the same the same storyline, but I anywho, yeah, <laughs> it's all fun. Yeah. I uh, I know when we started, we started the conversation about your death at Dawson's Creek, but you yeah. know, there's a Cinemorg website out there that had, that lists eight of your deaths, <laughs> including Dawson Creek, <laughs> across all your television times. So my mom at one point she said. I can't take it. She said, do they write it into your contract that you have to be killed every part you do? She said, I can't take it. I can't take much more of you be watching you being killed on television. <laughs> Uh, that's so funny. But you know, it's usually the characters that work themselves into a spot that the writers can't get them out of. They're the interesting characters because they become so complex that it's like, like that Teen Wolf dad had to die. He had to die. I would have killed him if the writers hadn't. 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You mentioned Broadway and uh, and and the Tony Award winning play you were in. Uh, you were also in Twelve Angry Men, Juror Number Eight, same as Henry yes. Fonda. Such a powerful you played that role. Very, very powerful role. The interesting thing is, is I actually, when I was in high school, somebody sent me pictures that we did a little high school production at Butler High School in Louisville, Kentucky. Our drama class did a production and I was in it. And then in 2018, I think it was, I went to the Judson Theater in Pinehurst, North Carolina, and had the privilege of appearing on stage with Mike Boland, who has uh, just had a film at different festivals, Yo Andrea is the name of it. And he's the best juror number three I will ever see or had the privilege to be on stage with. But we had an awesome, wonderful time doing that. And we had planned to do it in Greenwich, to do a production in Greenwich. Also, I was workshopping a play about Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda called Hank and Jim Build a Plane, which we took for workshopping in New Orleans. And I had a six-year Hallmark contract, Ruby Herring, Murders and Mysteries. That was right at the beginning of COVID. When the shutdown happened, that all went away, along with like eight or 10 personal appearances. And for a year, you know, we all sat and twiddled our thumbs you know luckily i i was able i was called to do stargirl in february of 2021 and i started traveling again i that play sounds fascinating by the way uh hank and jim well you know what's fascinating about it and it's in workshop now and i think they're rewriting and going in different directions with it if they picked it back up and we'll see what happens initially the, the the draft that we did was about the lifelong friendship of Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart, despite vast political differences and ideological differences and romantic rivalries. And of course, building the plane is a metaphor with how did they manage to stay in relationship with each other, despite, you know, this was during the House on American Activities Committee and naming names. And Henry was more liberal and Jimmy was more conservative, was talking to the committee and Henry finds out, well, how do you stay in relationship which is a great lesson for today with people with whom you have major differences. Oh, it's an amazing message for today. And it kind of gives you some hope when you can hear stories like this that happened decades ago, that this is a pattern and that there is a path out of it, that we can disagree and then kind of come to terms. And And that's kind of what we've forgotten, that, you know, we can disagree and nobody has to die. You know, nobody gets to send anybody to hell. I'm sorry. You know, nobody has to leave the room. We can disagree enthusiastically. Sometimes it's not possible because the value systems are just too different. But more often than we allow ourselves, we can stay, keep the relationship intact so that we can keep listening to other to each other and one may move a little this way the other one may move a little that way but it's not necessarily i disagree with you so i'm never speaking to you again i mean what are we 10 exactly it's like come on guys you know one thing my dad who was a minister he just passed away in june uh, he was very progressive minister and one thing he said when you're in a disagreement with a person he said and you disagree with the what they're saying and you're having a disagreement he said attack the idea but never the person those are great words yeah sounds like your father was an awesome awesome guy he was sorry for your loss thanks so any uh any flash reboots coming up or like (laughs) (laughs) what would you do if they said you know what flash 90 is so popular bringing back we want to do a a limited run we want to do a series we want to bring you back the character that i feel that i am uniquely qualified and situated to play right now both age-wise and experience-wise is jay garrick I would like to know more about Jay. That's one reason I enjoy uh, going to Stargirl. When I have been there with the Justice Society, it's been interesting because Jay on The Flash is an advisor. Stargirl is the Justice Society. That's Jay's society. He's in his seat of authority. I've had fans contact me and say, you're more Jay Garrick on Stargirl even than you are on Flash. I said, well, I can explain that because he's in his seat of power it, with the Justice Society. So that's, right. that's great fun. But it is cool that you get to explore the same character in such different ways, depending on which universe you're in. 
You know, it's amazing. I got to say one more thing. As hesitant as I was to play a superhero character, there were not A-list actors, by and large, blocking to play these characters in 1989 and 1990. Everybody was kind of like wanting to keep their distance to see if this experiment of a new way of telling was going to... And I just heard an interview with Jeremy Renner talking about the gift of being able to play his superhero character over a number of years to explore different sides. And I've been a professional actor now. I'm in my 43rd year of being a professional. I'm going, wow, how times have changed that we hear an A-list actor expressing gratitude that he's been able to play a superhero uh, over a number of years and explore so many different facets of that character. I was like, Wow, it's every, every now and then perspective hits you, you know. And you're the, you were the original trendsetter. They're gonna they should name they should be like oh it's a ship or something like uh you know a JWS. <laughs> or there should be there should be something they should they had to coin something that that relates back to you because I think you'd you'd be considered the godfather of this. So wow. So where can people keep up with you on social media? Do you hang out on Twitter and stuff or? I'm very engaged socially and politically, much to many of my admirers' chagrin on Twitter. And uh, Facebook is a combination. If people want not to be subjected to my opinions, that's what I keep my Instagram page for. That's personal pictures from my life, my family, uh, my friends, my neighborhood, uh, my announcements for my conventions. Super fun. You know, that, was, that was my flash noise. The, uh, <laughs> there you go. I heard that. I heard that. Anyway, this was awesome. I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Stay in touch. I'm John Wesley Ship Jr. is my handle on Instagram, but I'm verified on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Other John Wesley Ships pop up. There's even now on Facebook currently someone calling themselves John Montaigne with all of my pictures. That's not me. You've got to, it's John Wesley Ship on Twitter and Facebook. And also the name at the heading is John Wesley Ship, but my handle on Instagram is John Wesley Ship JR, John Wesley Ship Jr. And look for the blue check. When this posts, I'll I'll put direct links to all all your goodness so people can find you. Easy peasy. I appreciate it. Well, thank okay, you so man. much. I appreciate You're very welcome. Did that episode go by really fast or was it just me? Everyone, one more time for John Wesley Ship. How amazing is he? Such a nice guy. Amazing on the flash, the CW Flash, Stargirl. NYPD Blue, Dawson's Creek. So many great stories. Well, with the interview over, it can only mean one thing. I know episode 202 has come to a close. I can't believe it either. One more huge thank you for my guest, John Wesley Shipp. And of course, a huge thank you to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word. And we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.